0: Straight Talk Live, exploring human, digital, and social transformations. Welcome to Straight Talk Live. I am one of your co-hosts, Rick Snyder. I'm the CEO of Invisible Edge and the author of Decisive Intuition, and incredibly excited about today's episode. We're gonna talk to author, speaker, and activist John Perkins about the death economy versus the life economy and how we're at the current crossroads right now, where is our economy based on death, <laughs> and, and all the things in the past that are, are really not sustainable? And then what does it look like to actually transfer to a, an econ- economy that's based on life and regeneration and the future? So that's really what we're going to get to the heart of today. First, I want to also introduce our co-host, Af Malhotra. Af, take it away.
1: Thank you, Rick. Welcome. Thank you for coming on the show once again. Um, I'm Af Malhotra, as you know, the co-creator of um, uh, Straight Talks Out Live, but also the co-founder of a very exciting AI company called Growth Enabler. And um, again, privileged to have been on this journey and um, you know, honored to speak to guests like John today. There's so much to discuss with him today. What a fantastic and fascinating man he is. I've had uh, a brief look into his life through some uh, desk research but I'm uh, excited to speak to the man himself. And so let's not delay, let's crack on as I say. So Rick, over to you and let's introduce our guest.
0: Okay, excellent. So um, John Perkins is a a New York best-selling Times author. Uh, of Confessions of an Economic Hitman, um, several books, and his most recent one is Touching the Jaguar, which we highly recommend, which we'll get into today. Uh, He's also served as chief uh, economist for uh, some organizations like the United Nations, the IMF, um, the World Bank, Fortune 500 companies. So you may have heard of some of those. Uh, So he's had incredible amounts of influence and perspective, um, he's also literally been part of regime changes back in his background with the U.S. government and foreign countries, an amazing diverse experience. So, John, we are very thrilled to have you on the show. Welcome to Straight Talk Live.
2: Thanks, uh, Rick and Ath. It's it's great to be with you. you uh, I'm so happy to be on the show. Thank you for having me.
0: You're so welcome. So, one of the things I, I loved, um, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, it was a page turner. I remember being in Tulum, Mexico, on some lawn chair. And just, I couldn't stop reading the book. And it was just so fascinating, your story, your real personal story of literally being part of some amazing uh, regime changes, insurgencies, and just the philosophy of the US government at the time of how they messed with other countries. And it speaks to a lot of what's been happening in our current era right now, um, where we've you even talked about this with me on the prep call of just the Trump administration and some of the interesting shenanigans going on around power and transference of power so i just love to start there as far as a current event. What are some of the things that you've seen and noticed recently that might echo back to what you know from how this goes down and other other transfers of power that you've been part of?
2: Well, that's a fascinating question, Rick, because I think first of all, we need to start by saying that despite what most Americans think, we, we've never actually been a democracy or even what we call a, a democratic republic. And, you know, for. For many years, only men, only rich men, men with land, property men had the right to vote. Mm-hmm. And then in the late 1800s, uh, Af- people of color, men of color got the right to vote. Women didn't get it until 19- 1919. Uh, and today we know that big corporations, a CEO of a big corporation has a lot more power than his one vote at the voting polls through, through campaign financing. So it's been a, you know, but but I think I look at it as throughout the history of the United States, there's been a movement toward greater democracy. And I also wanna start by saying my, my family fought in the American Revolution. I'm a very loyal American and people sometimes think I criticize the country too much, but I think the way to get better is through uh, talking about the things that you do wrong and working to improve them, which is always my goal. Um, and I think though we were moving on this trajectory of becoming more and more democratic until very recently. And I think what we've seen, you know, these last few months, this last year, on top of COVID nineteen, to go through this terrible struggle around race, racism in the United mm-hmm. States, police brutality, and, and the, the sort of the systemic bias, bigotry that's that, that's in this country, and then there was no question <clears throat> that there was an attempted coup by the current mm-hmm. president at that time, the current president Trump. Um, It was classic, you know, and I have been through coups in other countries as an economic hitman during that period. Um, This was classic. And it was also, I think, um, a a, a, a test a a testament to um, our government that it didn't happen. I think also it's it's not just a testament to the people today who, who who finally came through, including many of the Republicans who have been strong supporters of Trump, that that then suddenly started to uh, criticize all of this and, and stand up for for what we for for the democracy as we have it, mm-hmm. uh, but also to the system that we have, mm-hmm. because in countries where coups. S- succeed almost always, the military has to be involved in the coup, and I think the the military establishment in this country, for the most part, is is very stalwart. and And I've known a number of high, a number of low and high military officials. In fact, um, the woman that I live with, who I'm in love with, my my partner, her her father is a retired general. Mm. <laughs> uh, and you know, very just just outrage at the attempted coup, and and I think you know we have this strong military tradition that they were not going to back down, and it's a difficult situation given the fact that theoretically, uh, or not theoretically, legally, uh, the president of the United States is the commander in chief, mm-hmm. but as I talked to military, as I talked to generals, as I talked to military leaders during this period, they said, well, it's known in the military that if your commander is breaking the law that you don't follow. And Mm, we're clear that if if he tries to subvert the legitimate election results, which have been certified in in every state, Mm -hmm. including by Republican certifiers, um, then we don't follow that command. So it's not gonna happen. Mm -hmm. In other words, the coup, the the military is not gonna support the coup. And if the military doesn't support a coup, it probably, in my experience, it's not gonna be successful.
0: Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen a more overt test of our democracy that was overt, like this, where it was like, okay, which side, which way is this really going to go? And how far is the good old party going to support that? And where's the line? And right. I was really relieved to see some of those conservative leaders really remember the bigger picture, not just the party.
2: Yes, me too. I was too. And I, I think, you know, this last year, in fact, the last four years have exposed a very deep shadow. In the United States, we've had the shadow. It, it it isn't Trump's shadow. It isn't the Republican shadow. It's a shadow that's been there for a long time. It includes uh, the idea of exceptionalism that we're better than any other country uh, and that we're more more powerful. Which in some respects we are more powerful, but that's not a that's not a moral uh, value. That that, that mm-hmm. power has to be when you have when you have a, a lot of physical power as we do, you need to have a lot of moral. Uh, Ethics behind it, and so what we've seen in the last four years is a shadow exposed of a country that's that, that uh, goes to a lot of extremes to garner resources for itself, to exploit other countries when necessary, and um, you know we've seen the shadow of the of the bigotry, the racism uh, that, that's been beneath the surface for a long time. Mm-hmm i think it's it's so been so important to expose that shadow you know it it, if there's a shadow it's because there's an object between the light there's a the light shining on an object that casts a shadow Mm -hmm. and how do you get rid of the shadow you keep raising the light and Mm -hmm. so if the shadow is here the light's here the shadow is here as you raise the light the shadow goes away, it, it mm. ends with the object. Mm. And, and I think that we've been ra- raising that light uh, during these years I, I, and that for that, I'm I'm grateful that, that this has happened because I think it's exposed to ourselves, some yeah. of our deep seated problems. And I think it's, it's exposed them to the world too. Mm-hmm. And while I don't, I'm not happy that the United States reputation has taken such a tumble in the last years as it has around the world. I am happy that we're beginning to see the shadow side of ourselves because only by seeing it, only by shining a light on it, can we correct it? Can we change it? Yeah. And we're at a time now where, the, where, where there's no question that the, the East is taking over, China is on the rise mm-hmm. and the United States is sinking. And uh, in order for us to continue to rise, in order for us to really uh, meet China face to face, uh, we've got to clean up our house a bit. We've got to look better for the world and we've got to look better to ourselves. And, and in fact, that's the subject of my neck, uh, the book I'm working on now is, mm. is how do we relate to what's happening with the new silk road, with the whole Chinese endeavor at this point? Mm. i get this jaguar that's climbing up on me <laughs> right now. Uh, she, uh, she loves to do these programs. Say hi. Hey. Her name is Jaggy. It's like, okay. Oh, she She, she, she knows. Those have,
0: For those of you on audio, he's got an adorable cat that's called Jaggy. That's in his lap right now, climbing around. That's <laughs> yes, right. That's fantastic.
2: He, he squirrels outside the window, which got her very, very excited. this morning.
0: <laughs> you know, as as we're talking about regime change and just all the things that have happened uh, and insurgencies and these kind of things, you know, one of the things that I know you're very passionate about uh, being an economist is are we built, what, what are we building our future on? Is it a death economy? Is it a life economy? Let's go deeper into that. I'd love to hear what is your definition of a death economy? What do you mean when you talk about that?
2: A, a death economy is an economic system that's consuming itself into extinction, which is what ours is doing. You know, it's, it's in the short run, it's, it's, it's destroying the resources or it's gobbling up the resources upon which it depends in the long run. And it's based on uh, a single goal, and that is to maximize short-term profits for a few investors, basically, regardless of the social and environmental costs. For corporations, for businesses, and for the rest of us, it's really about maximizing short-term materialistic consumption, regardless of the environmental and social costs. Now that's a pretty new perception of success. It's been kicking around for a few hundred years, that idea, but it really took off in 1976 when Milton Friedman won the Nobel Prize in economics. And Friedman had a tremendous influence around the world. He, he you know, he was very close to President Reagan and, and Prime Minister Thatcher and many, many, many other world leaders. And one of the most significant things he said was the only responsibility of businesses to maximize short-term profits, regardless of the social and environmental costs. Mm. And that then became the mantra at all business schools. It became the mantra Mm. of businesses, it became the goal. And it has produced this economic system that is in fact consuming itself into extinction. And in, in, in that death economy is behind all of our other crises. You know climate change income mm-hmm. inequality the coronavirus mm-hmm. uh, extinctions all of our major problems are symptoms of this death economy mm. which in a way is a good thing because it means all we got to do is change that perception to uh, maximizing long-term benefits for people in nature and we can turn this around into a life economy mm. yeah.
1: and and so just to supplement that point in the past shows john we've been debating and discussing stakeholder capitalism or this new paradigm of business. And it stems from actually stems from a lot of, uh, a lot of threads that can uh, make us uh, talk about this in a compelling way. One of which comes from psychological, the psychological pressure, anxiety, stress, um, the difficulty we face, one faces, uh, operating in, in this, uh, quarterly results driven. Um, corporate economy and we've seen the sort of downsides of it over the years you know whether it's the father who keeps traveling or the mother because they've got a big job and they never see the kids and the kids are screwed up you know 20 years down the line and they have to have cbt and recover and then blame the parents for whatever it is that is going on to um income inequality and i think since covid uh, we're starting to see the, the divide between the rich and the poor uh increase the delta is just immense it's it's been quite disturbing for for many of us Tell us a little bit about, um, we, we want to live in hope too. Of course, we, we know a lot of people now want to look forward. They want to, They hope there's some sort of a light at the end of the tunnel. Tell us a little bit more about this life economy and how real is it? And I think we have a sense of where you're going, but how real is it and how are we going to get there?
2: Yeah, thanks, Af. I, I think that, uh, well, the wealth, to start off, a life economy is an economic system that pays people, uh, pays investors and pays workers to, to clean up pollution, uh, to regenerate destroyed environments, to recycle, and to develop new technologies that don't ravage the Earth, uh, that, that define ways to re- reuse resources or to create energy out of air. There's so many possibilities. Mm-hmm. And even before COVID-19, we were definitely moving in that direction. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, we had B corporations, benefit corporations, in the United States, the Green New Deal. Um, and uh, conscious capitalism. And uh, you know, a year ago, this last August, or so about a year and a half ago, we had 180 some odd executives of the world's largest companies come together in the, in the business round table. And they basically made a statement that, that we, we, ca- we can no longer be about maximizing profits. Mm-hmm. alone, we've gotta be about helping our employees. We've gotta be about helping the communities where we work. They were really talking about creating a life economy. Mm-hmm. So there's been that movement in that direction um, even before COVID-19. And I think mm-hmm. this pandemic has shown us not only that we sometimes have to change, but that we can change. Mm-hmm. We may not like to, ch- to change. We don't like to change. Human beings don't, don't generally like change or not very drastic change anyway. Mm-hmm. But we've seen in this, this pandemic all over the world that people have changed. We, we we had to change and we've changed. And many of us have seen that we've changed for the better. You know, these these virtual programs that we're doing, you know, we might be doing this one, the three of us even had it not been for the pandemic, but I've been on board meetings, I've been at a lot mm-hmm. of meetings that I would have had to fly to New York or San Francisco mm-hmm. or or someplace (laughs) to have the meetings in the past. And now we've been doing it virtually. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, and and there's so many examples. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we've really seen how we can change and we must change. So that that trajectory that we were on, that was moving us more and more in that direction. I think now we've been given a greater motivation and a greater inspiration that we can go in that direction toward a life economy. And this is not an economic system that demands us to sacrifice to live in caves or, or something like that, like people fear. This is this is a full employment economy that can bring us all much better lives, mm. and greater equality.
1: <clears throat> one question that's playing on my mind, I have to ask it. Um, I, I read through. I haven't read the books, so my apologies, but I have read through a few different summaries, and that was captivating enough. The, the first one, "The Economic um, Confessions of an Economic Hitman." Just just a personal one. Uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people would be fascinated by what you went through in the seventies and eighties. And then of course you wrote the book and then you were, it's an expose and you talked about a lot of things that have fascinated all of us. And, uh, some of, some of what you've shared is also quite uh, destabilizing and distressing for people and disappointing, maybe even disheartening. Cause they're thinking, Oh my God, is that how things actually operate? So, you know, um, where has the world come to today? I mean, you know, I'm sure you sit back and reflect on the days in the seventies and eighties, and we've read about it uh, just, um, What's your view? Have we are we kind of similar in many ways and just a few augmentations? Where's the world? Have you seen seismic shifts? Um, I just wanted to get your where's your sentiment? You know, you're, you're much later in your life now, you've accomplished many things, you've you had failures and successes, you've done written, written a bunch of books. What's your take on where the world is today and where it's going to go from the days you were doing what you were doing in the book in particular?
2: Well, I it's um. It's a very really difficult question to answer <laughs> because it, it, it changes. And this year has changed me in many, many ways. Okay. Uh, it's given me hope, but it's also shown how, I hate to say it this way, but how stupid we human beings can be. Mm-hmm. You know, you may be hearing this cat in the background. I don't know whether you hear it every now and then she gives a little cry. Uh, she's... She's looking at squirrels, like I said. She'd love to get out there and get at those squirrels. Uh, Nature is pretty violent in many respects that way. But we're the only species that is capable of destroying the planet and seems to be almost intent upon doing that. I mean, we we are doing such stupid things. And yet we're so smart in so many ways. And, and I think that that's really come together this past year. What we've been seeing, what I've been seeing is I've been traveling around the world since Confessions came out in 2004 and it sold millions of copies in in almost about 40 languages now. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I've I've traveled in many places, China and Kazakhstan and Russia and all over Europe and Latin America and all over the United States. And everywhere I've gone, I've seen that people are waking up to the fact we live on a very fragile space station, the earth, mm. and we humans are the pilots. There's no question, it's, it's in our hands. It's our responsibility. We've been piloting toward disaster, mm-hmm. but we've been now, we, we were, we've been waking up to that fact. And I've, I've really taken heart as I've traveled around the world and, and, and spoken to thousands of people and people show up and they, they show up because they, they, they understand this. They see that we must change. Uh, and uh, we must reboot the navigation system of this space station Earth that we're on and we must become better pilots at the same time whenever and that's a, cl- I would call that a consciousness revolution and whenever there's a revolution historically we know this, this pushback so those who represent the status quo try to stop the revolution mm-hmm. and we've seen that very, very strongly. And and actually, I think Trump represented that to a large degree. And, and, and so did you're in you're in England, I think, and, and, and yes. what we've seen with Brexit and many of the things going on in Europe, but all over the world, we've seen this pushback. So we've seen this awakening of people around the planet to the need for change, the dissatisfaction. And sometimes that dissatisfaction moves in, in the United States, it moved very far to the left. Well, Politically speaking, fairly far to the left with Sanders, and to the right with Trump. You had these two. Mm-hmm. You had these two extremes. But really, they both came from the same deep dissatisfaction mm-hmm. with the system. Yes, it for a, sure, there was a very strong similarity. A different approach to how to deal with that dissatisfaction. Very different, but it's this dissatisfaction, this knowing that things are not working. They're not mm-hmm. going right. Mm-hmm. And we've been, and so people have been really working toward changing that, and that's why we have conscious capitalism, BCOR, all, all the things that have, that have that have been transpiring that are positive. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, we get the pushback from the status quo mm-hmm. that says, "Oh no, 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 no! Let's in fact let's deregulate. Let's not let's not have as many environmental laws." One of the things Trump did, and 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 on and on this 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 pushback. But throughout history, revolutionaries, or maybe we'd rather think of ourselves as agents of change. We've always taken strength from the pushback. It's like a martial artist. I've been a martial artist most of my life. <clears throat> and, you know, we know that if, if I'm up against someone who's a lot bigger and stronger than me, I don't try to overpower him. I got to use his, his energy, his strength against him. I've got to be smart enough. I've got to know the right techniques to <laughs> move that energy against him. And I think good revolutionaries, good agents of change, see that when there's a resistance, you take strength from that. You get inspired mm-hmm. by it, and you you swing it around. You transform it. The subtitle to my latest book, "Touching the Jaguar," is "Transforming Fear into Action to Change Your Life and the World." And and, and that's I think what's going on now. And mm-hmm. and I believe that this last year has shown us the necessity for doing that, mm-hmm. and also that we have the capability to do that. And in fact, it can be fun.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 You know. About- you- Sorry, going right. Yeah, you're, you're. You know what this is pointing for me toward in this conversation is really the whole thing around mindset and how do we shift our mindset, even from a death to a life economy. How we relate to money, how we relate to the environment, mm-hmm. and so that's a question I have for you from based on your experience in working with many organizations that you've worked with, governmental, private sector, etc. What what's one of the patterns that you've seen where? Like I'm trying to imagine an investor going beyond just short-term profit for, you know, for themselves. How do they, how do they make that shift? How do they really go beyond that? Do they have to have personal tragedy in their life to really open their eyes to something bigger? What have you seen has been some of the key ingredients that will get leaders to shift their mindset in these big ways we're talking about?
1: It's like triggers, right? We're trying to work out are there any triggers that you've mm-hmm. seen in your experience?
2: Well, certainly the, the virus has been a trigger and certainly be, be, even before that, the, the knowledge that the, that the glaciers are melting and the oceans are rising and the polar bears are disappearing. I mean, this, we, we've been seeing a lot of triggers, but I think this virus has been a very, very important one, partly because when we really recognize it and start to think about it, this virus comes out of nature. Mm-hmm. As did SARS, as did AIDS, they all came from the animal mm-hmm. world and, they, and because we've been destroying that world, because we've been encroaching upon it, because uh, we, you know, I think nature is, is speaking to us in a way. It's, you can say that from a scientific standpoint, you can also say it from a sort of philosophical standpoint that, that, that nature is, is speaking to us. And um, so, yeah, there's, there's these, there are those kinds of triggers. And I think that you know people are are truly waking up to the fact that it just the system just isn't working, and and once we know that we we realize that we we have to change it and we can change it, um, you know if we look at at human history, we've been human beings as we see ourselves as human beings for around two hundred and fifty thousand years. Most of that time, we, we had a philosophy that, that that advocated taking care of the long-term, yeah. making a better world, or at least as good a world, leaving as, at least as good a world, maybe a better world to our children and grandchildren yeah. and so forth. And it's only been within the blink, blink of history that we've been so oriented toward the individual, toward um, <laughs> the short-term, short-term profit. That's yeah. a pretty recent thing. And when I, you know, I spent a lot of time in the Amazon with indigenous people and p- traditional people all look at the long-term, you know, the, the infamous seventh generation. I actually don't know any indigenous people that think seven generations mm-hmm. down. Maybe they did, maybe some did, but they'll think two or three generations for sure. Mm-hmm. And I, we all come from that. And, and I think we're, I, I really believe that we're, we're understanding the need to get back to that now, mm-hmm. finally. And, you know, in business school, uh, it, it was pre-1976, pre-Milton Friedman's Nobel Prize, I was taught that a good CEO makes a decent rate of return for investors, but also takes good care of his employees, gives mm-hmm. them health care insurance, yeah. gives them a pension, retirement pensions, and also... <clears throat> takes good care of the communities where the see where the company works Mm. uh pays taxes (laughs) imagine that and and invests in in school systems and recreational facilities Mm. uh that that a a good ceo has a responsibility way beyond just Mm. short-term profits and that's that's all changed since milton friedman and and Mm. it it was in the process of changing before that but it really really get hit then and Mm -hmm. earlier you mentioned the quarterly income statement which is is true it's it's guiding so much but it's it's worse than that today it's it's the daily stock market it's it's not even a you know it's gone from being decades to being a year to being a quarter to now being daily Mm -hmm. on the other hand i mentioned china earlier which is on the rise china has 30-year plans china does Mm -hmm. not look at short-term profits as being mm-hmm. the guiding principle interesting and that's one of the reasons that they're beating us out in africa and latin america big time i mean i'm writing about this and a lot of research there is no question uh, and the, what the world's seen and what i hear from my friends in different countries and in the press from other mm-hmm. countries i read spanish press frequently on the internet is, you know, if America is, is an example of democracy, who wants it? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yep. yeah. And also, uh, you know, you've been, the Ameri- United States, you've been investing in us, you've been giving us foreign aid for decades now, and we haven't, the poor people haven't really gotten all that much better, whereas China got rid of seven, it brought 700 million people out of poverty in a relatively short period of time so and i i don 't want to see that happen. believe me I'm, I'm, I write these books because I want to see the United States do better. I want to see us compete. Uh, but the fact of the matter is uh, we've we 've done a lousy job recently, and we need to do a much much better job of cleaning up our own house and using that as a model and an example uh, to show the world uh, the route toward democracy and a true form of of Market capitalism, not the kind of capitalism we have today, which we, I and many other economists call predatory capitalism. It's an it's an aberration. So we need to move toward a life economy. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: How do how do we balance of materialism? I mean, mm. now you brought up China because ideologies, culture, value systems, the entire setup, and the entire thesis in your minds as an individual or as a country, be it from a, the political side and or generations. I mean, China is a fascinating land in itself. How does materialism play out for you in the West versus the East? Uh, given China is also very excited about buying things and acquiring things, what are, the, what are you seeing being the, what are the nuances? What is the difference?
2: Well, I think one of you, I think it was Rick mentioned perception earlier. And uh, one of the things I write about is that perception creates reality. Uh, there's no question, uh, we, what, our perceptions create a reality, so there's no England, there's no United States, there's no Russia, there's no China, there's no culture, there's no religion, there are no corporations, except as we perceive them. Mm-hmm. When enough people accept a perception or codify it into the law or invest in <laughs> it, uh, it, it has a huge impact on, on reality. And our perception, is, is a, it seems almost as a global population today is molded by the idea of maximizing consumer materialism uh-huh. uh, I, I, and, and maximizing short-term profits. Uh-huh. Um, but that's just a perception. And it is not the perception of indigenous people that I work with. It hasn't been uh-huh. the perception of human beings for most of our history. You know, mm-hmm. if you go into the Amazon, deep into uh, traditional cultures, as I do often, and you're wearing a, a, a pretty watch, you know, an exciting watch, the shaman or whoever you're dealing with there, the very smart people, but don't, they don't have book learning, but they're very, very, very smart people. Uh, they'll, they'll say, well, that's beautiful. I'll trade you, you know, a spear <laughs> for that watch, or I'll trade you something for that watch. You do it and you go back a month later and you ask, "Well, where's the watch?" Oh, my, I, I, well, I traded that to somebody for something, mm-hmm. you know. And 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 you look around their homes, and they don't accumulate anything. Mm-hmm. And it's just—it's not about stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't think materialism is a human trait. I think it's—I think it's been a trait that we've been taught as a perception. You know, the old the, the, that stupid adage—you know, he who dies with the most toys is happiest, or whatever, however that right. goes. That's ridiculous, but that's a perception that's been fostered and we need to change. So our education system is extremely important. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I went to business school, you know, as I said, I was taught that a good CEO has to take care of the community and his employees, Mm -hmm. et cetera. But there was still that whole idea that you had to. You know, you had to keep making short-term profits too. You had to look at the quarterly income, at the quarterly statements, financial statements. And um, so our schools, our whole education system around the world is very oriented toward materialism, Mm -hmm. but that's a perception and we need to change it. And I do believe Mm -hmm. that we're in the process of changing it. And I think as I talk to a lot of people, Younger generation, people in their 20s, people just getting out of college, people in college. I hear a very different story from what I heard 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, don't, I don't hear as much uh, emphasis on, on making a lot of money. I hear more emphasis on having more time mm-hmm. to enjoy life and to be with their families and to travel and do whatever it is that they like to do.
0: Yeah. And I love that research point that, you know, millennials will take a pay cut to to go to a job that has more meaning and a sense of purpose and where they're developing and growing as people uh, that they're, it's not money uh, value on the money. Like it used to be, it's more just about what's going to better me as a human being and, and, and enrich my life. And right. so the whole value shift has really become prominent in the workspace that we're seeing me and AF in the business worlds that we travel. We see this all the time now with the newer generations and how that's rippling out across the whole company these days. Yeah. Yeah. What, one question I have for you is more around what you're talking about with perception change. And it's your latest book, touching the Jaguar. And could you just say or share a little bit about what do you mean when you talk about touching the Jaguar? What does that mean as a phrase? And then you have five powerful questions of how do we actually alter and change our perception? I would love to get to that for our audience so that they have these takeaways that they can use in their lives as well.
2: Yes. Well, so, the the idea of touching the jaguar is uh, comes out of the Amazon where the on a vision quest, um, a shamanic journey, when you see a jaguar, it's it's scary. It's the scariest thing out there. And uh it but it tells you that you're being you being you have a perception that's pushing you away from doing what you know you want to
0: do or need to do. And, <laughs> The <laughs> oh, jaguar way. just jumped up in the background. I'm at the
2: jaguar right now. <laughs> <laughs> see something? Timing, in there. timing.
0: <laughs> Yeah, it's planned. You know, it's rehearsed. <laughs> you guys are a good act over there. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so, um, so the idea being that if when you see that jaguar, if you run from it, it'll chase you. But if you touch it, it helps you change your perception. And when you touch it, you face your fears, you, you, face your blo- you, you, you face your blockages, and in doing that, you can change your perception about how to overcome your blockages, about how strongly, they whether they're really holding you back or not. And so touching the jaguar literally means looking at what it is that's holding us back, looking at our blockages, uh, philosophical, physical, whatever they are, confronting them, dealing with them, and then allowing that to change our, our perceptions, our values and our actions. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And it's, it's mm. so strong, you know, and the whole idea that perception molds reality, that's all part of that. So, so it's the, the Jaguar is keeping us locked in old perceptions that are not benefiting us anymore. When we touch them, we break through those perceptions. And you know, when you think about it, um, the idea that perceptions mold reality is quantum physics? It's modern psychotherapy. It's marketing. It's public relations. It's everything. I mean, it's it's not just a shamanic concept. It's it's truly everything. Uh, so that the, so when we touch the jaguar, we move through it. Mm. And yeah, there's a daily practice, or people can do it once a week. Or I, I I like to do it once a day, but people can do it once a week, and it's revolved around these five questions. Do you want me to get into those at this point? I would love
0: that. Yeah, Yeah, please.
1: Definitely want to to know what those questions
0: are. (laughs) Okay, so
2: the five questions and and the daily practice, which is in the book Confessions, uh, which is in the book Touching the Jaguar in a little more detail. But to to simplify it, uh, the first question is, um, what do I want to do for the rest of my life? What will bring me Mm -hmm. the greatest satisfaction? if I'm on that proverbial deathbed looking back, what am I most grateful that I did do or what do I wish I had done? And I, I'll give some examples. So I would answer that question and say, I wanna write. I love to write, I'm a writer. I love to write, I, I love to write. I write a lot of things that I never even try to publish just because I love to write. Mm-hmm. And I have a good friend who's a carpenter, He's kind of at the opposite end of the spectrum. So what he wants to do for the rest of his life is work with his hands in wood. The second question is, How can I use that to help others? Because we know that we're all happier when we help other people. Mm -hmm. We are social animals, (laughs) you know, we Mm -hmm. we come from that background, we have that in us. And then other other people could be one other person, family member, or it could be the whole world. So as a writer, I would answer that question by saying, well, I I write books like Touching the Jaguar, which says transforming fear into action to change your life in the world. Uh, (laughs) So I write about things to help other people. And my carpenter friend would say, "Well, I'm gonna, I like to work with my hands in wood, but I want to use only sustainable materials mm-hmm. to help the future. I'm mm-hmm. just going to use sustainable materials." Mm-hmm. The third question is, what's the jaguar? What's holding us? Here's the jaguar. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surrounded by jaguars. There's this jaguar over here. What's the jaguar that's holding us back? What are the barriers? What's blocking us from moving forward? as a writer i might say well i know i got to write every day to be a good writer but i just don't have enough time every day i can't i can't write every day and my carpenter friend might say well my clients don't want to sp- uh, pay the extra price for sustainable materials the fourth question is when we touch the jaguar how does that change our perception and so as a writer I might say, well, the Jaguar tells me, hey, get up half an hour earlier every morning and write, or watch an hour or less of television, three nights a week and write, or every night. (laughs) You know, there's the answer. And for my carpenter friend, the Jaguar says, hey, tell your clients that it's not a cost. The extra price of sustainable materials isn't a cost. It's an investment. You're investing in the future. You're investing in your future and in your children's future, in the world's future by using sustainable materials. Mm -hmm. and the fifth question is okay so what actions do I take as a result for a writer I write I gotta write and and for my carpenter friend uh it's like he's got to go out and do carpentry but he's also got to tell his clients hey you know I built you this cabin or I built you this house using sustainable materials and your kids here I tell your kids uh, and your parents did this for you it's as though they're investing in your education or anything else they're investing in your future Mm -hmm. and so Every one of us, every one of your listeners can use this approach. And, you know, so the the first two two questions may stay the same for quite a long time. Uh, uh, What do I want to do for the rest of my life? How do I do this to help others? Those are the Mm -hmm. first two questions. The the third, fourth, and fifth question is what's blocking me? And uh, how do I, what's the jaguar I got to touch? And when I touch that jaguar, how does it change my perceptions? And then what actions do I take? those may change fairly frequently. So when I touch the jaguar as a writer, oh, uh, I'm gonna get up every morning for half an hour earlier and write, okay, now the next jaguar I've got to touch is what am I gonna write about? And then what's the first sentence (laughs) each day? But as we go through this process, we're constantly waking ourselves up to, we're going to a higher consciousness about ourselves Mm -hmm. and our relationship to the world, actually. And we're moving forward into this, this higher consciousness and we're going closer, we're, we're moving forward into realizing our, our greatest, uh, what's gonna bring us the greatest satisfaction in life. What jo- Joseph Campbell said, bring us our bliss, uh, you know, complete our mission, whatever. Uh, and so as we go through this process, we're constantly waking ourselves up to who we are and what we like best. And it will change over time, aspects of that will change. And as they change we are we are going to higher and higher levels of consciousness Mm.
1: do you find um john do fantastic thank you for that i made a note um do you find um is it is it fair to say the first question just for the audience so you know because they're listening intently is it fair to say that the first question is not about um just the one thing that you want to do for the rest of your life because it's about phases we go through all sorts of phases in our lives um, I just want to make sure we 're interpreting the question in the right way, so if I wake up on Monday morning and i 'm taking your first question, what am I saying to myself well I, I definitely want, I love doing this i 'm pretty good at it that 's what I really want to do because there 's a greater purpose behind it. but I also have to accept that i 'll probably go through different phases in the journey of life sometimes there 'll be good ones and then there 'll be bad ones today i 'm doing this tomorrow i 'm doing something different as you as you did as you did throughout the your career. Is it fair to say that the first question is not linear, um, but the values are?
2: Absolutely. Uh, Thank Mm -hmm. you for bringing that up. Yes, if I look at my true goal in life, uh, is to transform a death economy to a life economy. Mm. That's huge, huge. (laughs) globally speaking. That's huge. So I got to bite off pieces. Mm -hmm. So uh, you know, what will bring me the greatest action satisfaction? It's being a writer writing about those things. But now I, I, I wake up and I say, well, so, you know, so Touching the Jaguar was my uh, 10th or 11th book. Um, and, you know, I, I, so there's a new book, and I'm working on a new one now. But that's all under that big umbrella of, of making a better world, transforming a death economy into a life economy. This is a big umbrella. And then there'll be 11 or 12 different books that all some of them are about shamanism some of them are about economic hitmen some of them about touching the jaguar but they're all kind of under that umbrella and then you know i choose to do this show with you because that's part of the same process you know i know we're going to talk about these things and i want to get that message out to as many people as i can constantly mm-hmm. and incidentally i've got to a five-day workshop coming up. It's it's over a period of five weeks. It's when, It's it's for a, a ninety minutes. Uh, I think it's every Tuesday coming up in February. It's on my website, johnperkins.org. If people really want to go into this more deeply, it's 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 exactly about this. It's about bringing that bliss into our lives. Uh, but I think that you you really hit the nail on the head there. Yes, that we can have we can have a we can have an overall vision of what we want to do with our lives but then that there's lots of different compartments that fit in that a part of you know it's part of all these little all these little streams flowing into the bigger river if you will mm-hmm. that, that comprise right. that and that's a very important aspect of it and so everything i do i mean a lot of most everything i do every day is oriented toward that but in many many different ways mm-hmm. uh, it, it goes in that way in many many different ways yes
1: mm-hmm. and, and and the piece around blockages because of course that's a real that's a real issue for a lot of people. And let me try and uh, think about blockages for people. Some blockages are, um, it's very subjective, but a blockage could be the environment you're in, as in the people who are around you, um, you know, family, friends, whatever. It could be the job that you're in, uh, the manager that you have, or in fact, it could be much deeper, which is the culture or the values that have been instilled in you, but you've just realized, ouch, that's, that's not who I am. Um, To what extent in your, I guess you can speak for yourself, to what extent have you accepted that you're willing to make certain sacrifices or trade-offs to unblock um, what's holding you back? Because you're clear about the first two, three questions.
2: Well, I don't think, I think I've learned to not look at them as sacrifices, but maybe sometimes as inconveniences, but you know, a, a sacrifice uh, implies some sort of destruction. <laughs> and 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 I've never seen it that way. There's always taking me if I if I follow through, and I don't always. I have to say, and we don't want to beat ourselves up if we don't. We want to just get back on track. But um, so their their experiences, their learning experiences. Um, but yeah, so you know, I mean, you could say back when I was an economic hitman, I was chief economist at this major consulting firm. I was making a lot of money. I was flying first class around the, around the world, whining and dining with presidents, and I was unhappy. Mm-hmm. I didn't know it. I thought of that, Well, I, I subconsciously I knew it, but I thought I was living the American dream, mm-hmm. and that getting out of that was a huge sacrifice.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, well, you know, I did. I don't make that kind of money anymore i don't you know, and I do travel, but I don't usually travel first class uh, and so you could say that I made the sacrifice when I got out. I made some big in 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 materialistic terms, I made some big sacrifices, but in fact, I moved into a much happier more life and a much better life, a much more satisfying life i'm doing what I love to do now every single day. Mm-hmm. And so I can't really look at that as a sacrifice, but mm-hmm. you could you, you could define some of those things mm-hmm. as I've sacrificed, a, you know, I live in a very small house now. I used to live in a little, really large house. I love living in the smaller house. It mm-hmm. makes everything much more intimate. It brings me close to the cat, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> the jaguar. Um, so, so I think that if we can, if that's again, sa- it's a perception. Mm-hmm. Where are we going with all of this? And it's mm-hmm. so much of it is about perception. But doing what we want to most do does usually require discipline. Mm-hmm. And so as a writer, I know I have to be disciplined. And there's certain aspects of writing that I don't like as well as certain other aspects. Well, you know, once the book, I think the book's finished and it goes to a publisher, they're going to put an editor on, and I'm going to get this stuff in from the editor and say, oh. You, why would you want me to do that <laughs> <laughs> and i can always say no to the editor but i, I actually have found over time that you, often the editors are right you know they mm-hmm. they've seen something <laughs> that i didn't see mm-hmm. and and so it's it's all part of the process but i think we we do have to recognize that just as the carpenter you know has to it, it involves some it involves discipline for whether he's using sustainable materials or not maybe it's more disciplined to use sustainable materials because maybe he has to take more time finding them Right. Um, but that's, that's just part of the process.
0: You make a really good point that we have a previous guest. Dr. John D. Martini, has made several times also on our show that when you're living a life that's aligned with your highest value initiatives and activities, it gives you more life. It gives you more energy. So even if you're in a smaller home, that doesn't matter because you're getting more life doing what you love to do. And that passion just comes forward in that sense of purpose. Um, so it's a really good reminder of, you know, you could have the perception of societal's ideas of what success looks like versus your own intrinsic connection and alignment with what is your purpose and what connects to that greater purpose that you're here to serve. And so you really give a good example of that, that. It's not really a sacrifice. It's actually from one perception, it might look that way, but it's not how it feels to me is what I hear you saying.
2: You know, when I joined the Peace Corps back in 1968 and I was sent in to live with the schwa deep in the Amazon, hunters and gatherers. I did some research and according to, at the time, the statistics all said that they were some of the most impoverished people on the planet. Hmm. And when I got to them, I found that they were incredibly prosperous. Mm-hmm. They had everything they wanted. They only worked about two or three hours a day. The Women gardening, the men hunting, and then the rest of the time they spent playing with their kids, swimming, making love, enjoying life. <laughs> you know, But they didn't have any currency. They didn't have any money. It was all yeah. done by, you know, as a communal service. Basically, a good hunter hunted and, and provided food for everyone. Someone who made canoes made canoes for everybody, and there was this communal sense. So I, it was a it was an amazing lesson in how we define prosperity mm. and how we define success.
0: Mm. You know, with our last ten minutes or so, uh, we have some uh, a lot of questions coming out on our social media that we want to bring to you, and also a reminder: anyone listening right now, now's the time to bring in your questions. So, Linda, Chandres, Rahul, anyone on the call, please think about your questions for John. Here's one uh, that really sounds interesting to me. I want to read this to you, here, John. The question is: pre-COVID, there had been a surge of American, Aussie, and UK gig workers traveling to other countries to live more cheaply. Now that companies have seen that remote work is feasible, this trend is certain to increase once travel restrictions are eased. What are your thoughts on this, John? Does this create problems in developing countries?
2: Well, I think it could, it could create, it can do both. It can create problems and it can create many opportunities in developing countries. But of course that depends on the people in developing countries having access to the internet, having access to uh, the technology. And and I, I, I that's that needs to be a very very strong goal uh, in all aspects of development, uh, whether it's national governments talking about development or agencies like the United Nations or World Health Organization. And I know you know there's a there's a, there's a very strong belief system. It's not a belief. It's a, it's a fact that we 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 need the internet today as much as we need you know any other forms of communication. It's essential. It's not It's not a luxury anymore. It's essential. So, and if people in developing countries can have access to that, then that gives them access to incredible amounts of education without having to travel to it. Mm-hmm. It also gives them access to take on many of these jobs. Um, obviously there'll be some jobs where you actually have to be on site. You have to be there to do it. Mm-hmm. But there's so much that we can do as we've discovered during this pandemic, that does not require being someplace. It does not require flying. It does not require burning up more fossil fuels to be there. So, uh, you know, I think it's, the answer to that question depends on policy. It depends on the will of us, the people. How are we going to move in that direction? And of course that addresses the whole question that's come up so recently about uh, the importance of of Facebook and Twitter and, and other social media platforms and how do they control what goes out over them? What is their attitude toward uh, subversive activities, toward things that that, that inspire violence? Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you know that we've got to, we've got to answer a lot of these problems? We don't have the answers mm-hmm. yet, but I think that you know the opportunity is definitely there to create something that's essential that, that 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 is a step beyond what happened with the Gutenberg press. Before the Gutenberg press, basically the Catholic Church controlled everything that was written <laughs> because it was all scribed by by monks and priests, and the Gutenberg press allowed it to go out to a much larger public. That created opportunities. It created many problems also. We're in a phase very, very much like that now, except now it's on a global level. I think it's very, very exciting, but we have to confront a lot of the issues around it.
0: Mm-hmm. It's a great response. Um, this is another fantastic question from Chandras, who is a professor at one of the more prominent uh, schools in London. And he asks, as an academic, and this is to do with more the short-term profit uh, focus. So as an academic, I agree with the majority of what you say. Now, how do I sell it to my undergraduate business school students from a poor background who seek money and and wealth to get out of and their family from a life of poverty?
2: Well, if we really look at the idea that it's not about short-term profits for a few wealthy individuals... Which is what most business schools have been selling t- up until now, mm. and that has been changing and if we look at it instead of long term benefits for everyone and mm. for nature, then that basically solves that that, 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 that problem it answers that question uh, that as these students move up and into the business world to really focus on income equality and you know back when I was uh, mm. A, a chief economist. Uh, I, I, I may have the statistics wrong, but but what, I don't remember the actual numbers. But the amount of money that the CEO made versus the average the average person, I think, in our company was was I think it was limited to something like seven times, which still seems like a lot. But today, it's many, 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 many what is it magnitude above that? It's many times more that CEOs make compared to the average individual. That's outrageous. And so, I would suggest to, to the professor and, and, and others in this field that we really work more and more toward this idea that uh, the, the, the long term future of our survival as a species on a planet that we can recognize, I think we'll survive as a species one way or another, but and then one that we recognize that we want to pass on to our children depends on us redefining success. And it's not about who mm-hmm. makes the most money or getting, you know, coming out of poverty to become a billionaire. Mm-hmm. That don't instill that in your students. Instill in your students that they want to come out of poverty to make a decent living for themselves and all their family mm-hmm. and all their friends and neighbors, all the other people that that that, that 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 they were surrounded by when they were in that impoverished situation. Mm-hmm. That's a tremendous goal, and that's the life economy. And to create an economic system that our, our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren will look back and say, my goodness, thank God those people did what they did Uh, back there in 2021, 2025, whenever. Thank God they did that because they had the foresight to move us into a a world that that, uh, we are happy now out here in 2070 to inherit. Yeah. Yeah.
0: You know, what just occurred to me right now is we could boil down this whole conversation in one way to how is power getting distributed? Yeah. How does power get distributed? And my question for you is, what do you want to say to the up-and-coming generation, the next generation of leaders who are seeing what's going on? A lot of them are pretty sick in the stomach of a lot of you know, how, how our future uh, past generations have been leading and the mess we've made on the planet, and a lot of the newer generations are very open-eyed to that. What do you want to say to the next generation of leaders in terms of power distribution or anything that you feel called to on your heart to share?
2: I would say to the next generation, I am extremely jealous of you, I'm envious. I think you are facing a huge challenge, but mm. an incredible opportunity. I think you're blessed to be alive, coming into power at this time. Uh, yes, my generation and the generation before me and just several since made huge mistakes. We also created some amazing things with internet that we're talking on right now. Science, technology, uh, medicine, mm. literature, music, art. <laughs> movies we've, we've done amazing things and we've made some huge mistakes and those huge mistakes revolve around this perception of short-term maximization of, of consumer materialism and profits and so change that and you young people are just coming into being at a most phenomenal time when people truly are waking up there's a consciousness revolution across this planet you can go to any part of this planet, including deep in the Amazon, and you'll see that people are being impacted by what's happening. You know, and it doesn't. It's, uh, China, Russia, all over. People are really getting it that we must change. So you're coming into into power. You're coming into maturity mm-hmm. at a time when we really understand that we must make the transition from a death economy to a life economy. And the only thing we have to confront is, as, as Franklin Roosevelt said, I think it was in his first inauguration speech, maybe it was his second one, uh, he said, you know, the th- only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And right. I, think, uh, I think Winston Churchill repeated something like that in, in England. But uh, that's true. And, and, and so this idea, the subtitle of the book, Touching the Jaguar, uh, uh, transforming fear into action to change your life in the world, this is the time to really do that. I know it's a scary time for young people. uh, And it's an incredible time of opportunity. Let that fear motivate you uh, to reaching Mm -hmm. out and touching that Jaguar Mm -hmm. and moving forward to make this incredible transformation that's so needed at this time you're blessed <laughs> <laughs> my only regret is that i'm just about to turn 76 and i don't know how many more years i've got left but quite a few i think but not <laughs> as many as you do
0: <laughs> uh it is brilliant um anything else Ath? that you want to ask before we wrap up today's show
1: no i think it was what a fun f- fantastic um 60 minutes um mm-hmm. john thank you for sharing your insights and wisdom and your personal life experiences i think for all of us we're on a very simple uh, pathway here. We wanted to try and create that collective mind shift and um, do a lot of what you've just said and do it virtually. You know, this, this was born out of the quarantine uh, during COVID. Actually, it's only eight or nine months old. And just the support we've had from people like you and the other speakers to try and um, transmit that message at large to as many people as possible through this forum is, um, is, is akin to the Gutenberg press Uh, analogy that you you shared and this is it this is the flat screen video square box analogy and until we get into virtual reality or something like that but um we're we're blessed and honored to have people like you sharing the um uh, you know this journey with us and thank you i just wanted to say thank you well you're
2: welcome and i so appreciate what you are doing and getting this word out and i think you have a remarkable audience from what i understand and and uh my hat's off to you i i'm very very appreciative of, of what you're doing and thank you for for doing it and uh mm. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here with you guys and look forward to another time hopefully in the future
0: and we would I love to, that and i
2: hope to see more of your people maybe some mm-hmm. of them will join that workshop in February. just mm-hmm. go to my website
0: johnperkins.org yeah so where can people find out more about your books and your work where so tell them more where they should go
2: i'm on mm-hmm. facebook and twitter and instagram and, and tiktok <laughs>
0: Sometimes you're doing TikTok. Well, sometimes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I have conversations, but well, I call conversations with Jaggy. You can go on a TikTok and see my conversations with Jaggy.
0: All uh, the new generation's ears just perked up when you said that.
2: <laughs> so did hers. Look, look at her ears. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> <laughs> that's
0: great.
2: Uh, but just go to johnperkins.org. It's uh, everything is is there. And I have a newsletter that comes out about uh, mm-hmm. once a month. And you can subscribe. There's a little box you got to put your email address in there. And, and join me at the at the webinar workshop we're doing webinar that's fantastic doing.
0: that's fantastic well,
1: when, when's the next book coming out when what's the approximate date
2: uh i i i can I, I did i decided i couldn't finish it till last the inauguration now that's mm-hmm. over i've probably got another couple of months to work on it and hopefully it'll come up by the end of before the end of 2021
0: would, would you be open to coming back on our show and talking about the rise of China without stealing too much thunder of your upcoming book, but just some of your experience and your research about that? Would you Absolutely. be willing to uh, talk about that specifically?
2: Absolutely. We can steal all the thunder we want from my upcoming book. You know, it's not, To me, it's not about <laughs> selling books. It's about getting the ideas out yeah, there. Yeah, excellent. And this is a good excellent. way to do it. I'd love to do that. I'd let's to- do
0: that. Okay, let's mark let's the moment here. All right. Yeah. That'd be fantastic. Thank so you thank you much. again for being part of our community at Straight Talk Live. Uh, and if you want to see more about John, you can also go to our website where we'll have a speaker's page where you can look for John Perkins' profile, which will be up in a couple of days. And we'll make sure to get those five questions up there along with some links to your work and your website as well. Great. Thank you so much again. Uh, and best, uh, best of luck to everyone out there and may this inspire your conversations that you're having in your lives thank and touching you. the Jaguars in your all of your lives. So thank you everyone.